Sunday Morning Matinee is brought to you in partnership with The Christian Century, a magazine for progressive church leaders. everybody, welcome to Sunday Morning Matinee, where we talk movies and pop culture with an eye for pastors, preachers, and Sunday school teachers. Today, Adam and I are joined by Bromley McClanahan to talk about the new Fred Rogers movie, A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood. My name is Matt. I'm the pastor at University Presbyterian Church in Austin, Texas. And I'm Adam, and I'm the minister of Overbrook Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And today in our first segment, Justification by Faith, we're going to talk about how a beautiful day in the neighborhood might help us think about life in the church and in the world. And in our second segment, Preaching to the Choir, we're going to offer up some specific ideas for what you might be doing with a beautiful day in the neighborhood for this next upcoming Sunday, which will be the first week in Advent, year A, December 1st. Happy New Year, Matt. Happy Liturgical New Year. Uh, in our third segment, Postludes, we'll take a second to share another little preacher thought from each of us on something else that we're reading or watching or following. Before we get too far into the movie, let me welcome back to the show our guest, Bromley McClanahan. Bromley is the co-editor, along with Karen Ware-Jackson, of the new book, When Kids Ask Hard Questions, Faith-Filled Responses for Tough Topics, which has just been chosen as one of the best books in religion and spirituality by Library Journal. Congratulations, Bromley. Uh, she writes Thank regularly you. for the Christian Century and is a minister for Union Church in Hinsdale in suburban Chicago. Bromley, welcome back to the show. Thank you so much. So normally this is the part of the show where I introduce the movie, but there's a slight twist this week, which is due to the complications of screeners and technical difficulties, I actually did not get a chance to watch it. So I'm going to kick it over to Adam. I'm going to join this conversation and um, be spoiled along with you all and get a chance to ask questions from the perspective of someone who hasn't gotten a chance to see it yet. But I'm going to let Adam actually open up the show for us. Take it away. So A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood is, surprise, surprise, only tangentially about Fred Rogers. Rogers' spirit thoroughly infuses the movie. In fact, the movie itself is introduced as one long adult Mr. Rogers neighborhood episode. But the movie is about Lloyd Vogler, a magazine writer who has family problems. Lloyd is a new father himself and estranged from his own father. And Lloyd is sent on an assignment to profile Fred Rogers, played convincingly by Tom Hanks. And Lloyd shows up with a black eye to his meeting, having brawled with his father at his sister's wedding. Fred immediately takes to Lloyd, and the movie tracks Lloyd's growth and how it is nurtured and supported by the very peculiar care of Mr. Rogers. At one point, a character tells Lloyd that Fred likes everyone but he loves people like you. And this is really a movie about Fred helping Lloyd understand what exactly that means. There is a lot to talk about here, uh, but Bromley, I'm going to let you go first. What themes in this movie resonated with you, uh, especially with your most recent work on the questions of children and the answers of adults? 
Thanks. I, yeah, as you say, I think there was so much here that is good meat for reflection. I was so skeptical about this film. Um, I, I grew up, as perhaps you did, watching uh, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. I get nervous about modern day saints. Like, I feel like we, um, we sanctify people who, or give that label to folks who are, uh, well, not dead. So I guess Mr. Rogers passes. But anyway, yeah. Yeah, um, <laughs> Uh, but anyway, I was really skeptical about it. And uh, and yet there was there was a lot there that I, I really appreciated. I think some of the main things that were really wonderful were, were the ways actually in which the sort of gentle, the gentleness by Fred Rogers is offered as another way to be a man. And to talk through your feelings, there's some, there's some of the most powerful conversation I thought were between Fred and Lloyd about Fred's own experience of being a father and how he didn't always feel like he did right by his kids and how they had some tough times. And so this sense about, uh, basically about um, how even when you're loving and even when you're doing this right, or as right as one can be with the professional and, you know, God-given gifts of Fred Rogers, that it, it's still hard. And so that I thought was really powerful, um, this sense that you can do things, you know, quote unquote, right, but still be have it be hard. And then also this idea that men and all people should talk about their feelings, even the hard feelings. And um, anyway, and I think that's really useful. And I will say, as the yeah. parent of young children, like, you still see that in Daniel Tiger, uh, which is, of course, the sort of PBS current spinoff of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. And and I love that. My favorite one always, and I'm pretty sure I quote it in the book, is, or maybe in another project that I'm working on, but um, is the Daniel Tiger song, Sometimes You Feel Two Feelings at the Same Time and That's Okay. I'm like, oh my God, you've given words to children for ambivalence. Thank you. <laughs> you've given words to me for ambivalence. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Bromley, that simplicity is so central to, I think, Fred Rogers' magic, which is that he's he's able to capture so much with so so little and yet that's also what makes him kind of inscrutable which is that he he's a peculiar sort and he doesn't change when he's off screen than when he's on screen and the, and the movie actually goes to great lengths to show you this that there isn't that Lloyd comes in looking for the real Fred Rogers because this is the type of writer he is right. and what he finds is that Fred Rogers from the television show is Fred Rogers in real life but Lloyd is utterly unprepared for what that might mean, because Fred is going to a- is going to ask him questions that he asks all of the children on his show, because he thinks that those questions are sincerely important questions, not just for children, but also for adults. And that is it is a piece of like sincere wisdom that I think parents can can sometimes embrace with respect to the feelings that their kids might be going through. And there's that incredible point in the movie where he starts talking about um, about kids' feelings and and about uh, about the feelings of of human beings in general. And he just wants people to remember that they were once kids, right? And that they had these feelings, and that something happens when you become an adult when you can't um, you've lost your memory 
of all of the myriad of feelings that you had when you were a kid and how they all interacted with each other and how sometimes they were so scary and sometimes they were super liberating. Um, and this movie, in the best ways that Fred Rogers does that, tries to pull that to the fore, not just for kids, right, but for adults. Because I think the, the convention of how this movie sort of orients itself is important. In the same way that Fred Rogers begins his show talking to an audience that is specifically children about what it's like to be a person in the neighborhood, he begin, the movie begins in the same way. And he says, I want to tell you a story about my friend Lloyd. And you get this picture of Lloyd and you see Lloyd, the picture that they show is like Lloyd with a broken nose or like a black <laughs> eye. And, um, and you realize like, oh, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood is not actually just for kids. It actually, it's, it works on adults too. And <laughs> that, was a, that, was, that was a lovely little realization that the movie was able to, to, to rise to the surface that I appreciated. Although, and so again, I feel two feelings at the same time about this because <laughs> the, um, I was a little, I, I appreciate so much that I felt like they were trying to demonstrate the authenticity and the integrity of uh, Fred Rogers. And I say all the time that, you know, if your theology doesn't translate for children, then you should look at your theology again. Like if it doesn't make sense to someone at a very basic level, God loves you so much that he wants to like murder you and his own son. You know, I mean like that, like you should think about that again. Um, uh, you should reconsider your atonement theology. Uh, you know, so, so I appreciated this sense of what is true for children is often true, you know? Um, and yeah. yet at the same time, I also felt like so irritated like would you do you really talk to adults like this it, it, like did he have any friends right. you know I would I would have it, it felt very in some ways it felt really patronizing and and so this, it, yes yeah and so I wondered if um because children are different than adults in a lot of ways too, right? I mean, adults understand a certain level of complexity that children don't. And we have myriad responses to that kind of earnestness, uh, perhaps. Well, and developmentally, we're different, right? Yeah. Like, I mean, so, we have, but anyway, we have like yeah. particular biological and, and neurological developments that are different. And, and it's worth at least recognizing that. But I agree that what this movie does, I think, also show is that Fred Rogers is weird. <laughs> right. Right. If there's something that sets Tom Hanks's performance uh, apart from just a caricature, it's that he seems to capture the weirdness of Fred Rogers. Because the temptation, I think, here is to play Fred Rogers as nice, as sort of overwhelmingly nice. But he's, he's not actually nice. He, he's very, very demanding as a human being. <laughs> Well, and so maybe that was what got me so much. I, I was talking to a friend of mine, not about the movie, of course, please. I signed my, you know, but um, but about how it struck me that I know a lot of gentlemen who love children and can talk about their feelings. Um, and, and I, I know a lot of people who really value honesty and 
uh, and understand at least, even if they continue to run from their feelings in any given moment or, you know, live into their strange family dynamics, at least they have some self-awareness about it. And, and, and it was funny because I often sort of wonder what it is that the church can offer people. <laughs> do you wonder that ever? Um, and, and I do think that that's, that's one of those things, right? I mean, like, is that we are trying to be honest about ourselves and our lives and our families and the world together. And we're trying to sort of be gentle and kind in the midst of complexity. And, um, and that's why I know a lot of people who are like that and who are not maybe as weird as Red Rogers. And Sorry, of course, the church fails a lot too. Um, and there are lots of people who are like that, who are just in therapy and not in church, you know? Um, but so that was, oh, and that was the other thing that just so, so irritated me. I was like, he is demanding a level of vulnerability from poor Lloyd that usually, you know, is at least your second session with a new therapist. I feel like there <laughs> is none of that, you know, <laughs> Lloyd didn't sign up for this. And I don't know if it's fair to ask. I mean, ultimately it benefited him, but yeah. So this is, I'm, I'm kind of curious about this. Uh, I'm, I'm curious about... Uh, this desire for church to cultivate um, gentleness, vulnerability, authenticity, kindness, I think maybe most of all. Um, and, and I'm curious about the ways in which we kind of need heroes to help us do that. Uh, Mr. Rogers has been in some ways kind of a, a, a church hero, who's a Presbyterian pastor uh, for what niceness and kindness is. And I'm super curious about the ways in which Tom Hanks is becoming him in real life. And, and, mm -hmm. I, and so I'm, I'm very curious about the Tom Hanksiness of all of this. I mean, there is a big profile in the New York Times this past weekend on Tom Hanks, which is basically like journalists trying to go find out that Tom Hanks is secretly mean or secretly uh, a jerk and failing utterly because he seems so fundamentally nice. And so it feels to me like the public aura of Tom Hanks is becoming the public aura that used to be Fred Rogers in, in some kind of limited sense, that this is almost like stunt casting at this point. And I'm, right. curi and I'm curious about, like, for you all who saw the movie, like, how is the Tom Hanksiness of all of this? And, and does it say something about us as a culture that we uh, are, are kind of searching for these figures that can help us model what kindness and decency look like. I think perhaps especially for, uh, for, for kind of celebrity white men for whom that has been a very complicated place. Uh, <laughs> that has not been managed very frequently. Absolutely. No. So this yeah. is my, but that's my question, Matt, which is like, it, do we grade Tom Hanks on a curve here? Because ultimately he is nice but we expect celebrities because of their access and their fame to just not be. Um, I, I wonder, is he, is he Fred Rogers nice? Which is the, the, the central question here. Because my question is actually, do we need time, him? Like, do I, we need him to be Fred Rogers nice? Like, I'm not actually. I'm curious about our cultural desire for that and the production of it more so than I am about whether Tom Hanks is actually a gentleman. I 
I am biased against Tom Hanks because I have still not forgiven him for the Polar Express, which is 27 <laughs> kinds of creepy. Um, and I love that book as a child. So, um, so, but, but it is that, and, and it was interesting to see, you know, there was all this buzz around the movie because it, it came out, you know, or, uh, a week and a half after World Kindness Day, and so everybody was posting, which was what, like last Wednesday, or um, and folks, lots of Presbyterians posting about uh, Fred Rogers and all these sorts of things. So, and how important kindness is, and and that is not that is not the same as nice. I don't know. I don't. I I feel like when we when we talk about what the world needs and it, it's not, you know, it's not civility and it's not like, can't we all just get along? And I don't think that's what Rogers wants. And I don't know if that's what I didn't read the, I only started the profile. Um, uh, but like, it's not enough to just be kind of nice. Right. I mean, you have to really dig into what is hard and what is broken and then still respond to it. He's talking to Lloyd in the movie about uh, anger and, you know, he's like, there's nothing wrong with feelings. It's just sort of, what do we do with them? And I think that's what our sort of the, the, the language of niceness and, and kindness, which is often sort of wielded against legitimately angry people and groups, right? Folks who are fed up with being separated from their children at the border or police violence or things like that, right? You know, I mean, it's like, well, can't we all just be nice? Let's all put our feet together in the pool with the black mailman, you know? Um, and and it's got to be deeper than that. So, so I think Rogers really is. I don't know enough about Hanks, but yeah. I do think that you're right, that there are a lot of cultural forces that are like, oh, let's just be friendly. Let's just be nice. Let's just be gentle. You know, let's not protest in the streets, <laughs> you know, and it's like, well, no, let's let's do both of those things. I think you see it the same way with well, King, right? Like, we're all like, oh, I have a dream. You're like, you know, he was also against war and nuclear proliferation. The vision of kindness in this movie um, is different than being friendly. And I, I wonder if there's an important distinction to make here, which is, yeah, I think Rogers, at least in this movie, he's, he's kind of overbearing. Um, yes. And he's constantly <laughs> demanding intimacy. He's, he's, and he moves in even as people pull away. And so he, refu he refuses and resists almost every social cue that people give him. Right. And right. Um, and I think part of his the movie seems to suggest that part of his attraction to children is that they don't move away. They haven't been conditioned in quite the same way as adults to move away from that intimacy. Um, and he has a sort of insatiable need for it um, where that comes from. The, the movie, I think, rightly doesn't try and make a large conjecture about it. I mean, it talks about some of his own struggles, but for the most part, it's it's not a movie about Fred. It's a movie about Lloyd and. Um, and Fred is the medium by which Lloyd is going to come to his own pieces of self-realization. But the fact of the matter is, is that, like, I don't, like, as I think about Tom Hanks and as I think about what our world needs, like, Fred Rogers is kind of dangerous in the sense that, like, if you, 
if you allow him to keep moving towards you, like he's going to demand some measure of change from you. He's um, like Jesus. He's not. He, <laughs> well, he's not going to abide by our social conventions, right? And I think like that's okay. Like, and I think the other thing that was really striking to me in this movie, as it portrayed Fred Rogers, is that it shows how regimented his life was. So he gets up at five thirty every day to. Um, to write letters and to pray and to read scripture and he writes and then he shows up on set and he does these same things every day and then is in bed by 9:30 and he swims every day and he swims the same amount of laps every day his entire adult life and he he doesn't he doesn't eat meat he's a vegetarian he doesn't like everything is like crazy regimented and i feel like to live the life of fred rogers which is to be like fully present with a human being in front of you requires a schedule that is unbendable Although because he, his 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 whole life is like it's like he could be in the moment but everything else like because he has created time in his life where he is in the moment does that make sense yeah although i think so you're i mean the his stuff out when he's alone it's regimented but I felt like they hit over and over again how willing he was to throw his schedule to the wind when someone needed him. You know, um, the Make-A-Wish, when Lloyd first encounters uh, Fred, Matt, mm -hmm. he is on set and they're running behind. They need to get started because some kid who's like with Make-A-Wish or something is meeting him. And... um. That whole scene, I, I was irritated with that scene. But, but I mean, I appreciated what they were trying to do with it. Um, but it almost felt, and I don't, I, I think this is the term that one can use, but I almost felt like Fred Rogers in this movie is sort of like magical Negro. Do you know what I mean by that? Have you seen movies where, like, mm -hmm. there's this, right, you know, the, where there's one character, or the manic pixie dream girl, there's some mm -hmm. ideal type who is going to help the white guy who doesn't know how to do his life to, like, change. And Fred functions that way for Lloyd, right? He's this wholly strange, we can't really identify, but we're going to learn something really important about ourselves and the world. Um, and, and, and what that does, one, is it, it makes sort of that character then less nuanced, and they're not an agent kind of in their own, uh, you know, they're not, like, they're not a full human person. They're just there in service of the other person's characterization. But also it feels like a real disservice in some ways to the legacy of Fred Rogers. He's so particular in some ways, but, but some of the ways that those are presented are to set him apart from the rest of New York and, and the audience and all of us standing in uh, with Lloyd. And, the most dramatic and poignant and moved me to tears moment was when he was swimming, which my grandfather swims every day. He used to play tennis, but then he broke his leg playing tennis aggressively at like 85. Uh, so, uh, but now he swims laps. And 
and Fred is praying. You hear him praying the na- individual names of people, including Lloyd and his wife and his son and his father and all these things. And so what was so lovely to me about that is the dailiness of it, the regularity of it, and the fact that I know lots of people who pray individuals' names faithfully like that. So that felt the most real to me. It, was, it wasn't like, here's this magical guy, but here is this human person whose ministry is, particularly with children, but really in a broader sense to get everybody to tell the truth. Hmm. And that feels more important than, I don't know, that was poignant to me. Um. So let me ask you all, like, is this a movie that you could figure out or that you would want to figure out how to use in your regular practice of ministry? Is it something you could put into service in your churches? Yeah, I mean, I think for me, one of the helpful questions that it solicits is one of forgiveness and what forgiveness looks like and how it comes about. And um, and while its vision of forgiveness is perhaps uh, not as broad as it needs to be. Um, it does get us at some of the central core questions about sort of who is forgiveness for, who does it benefit? And I think it's that his conviction was that forgiveness ultimately is for the forgiver, um, not for the forgiven. Um, and that, that this movie also sort of you know, it walks a fine line of coercion and, and it does feel paternalistic to tell people all the time that they need to forgive the people who have wounded them. Mm -hmm. Um, even if the perpetrators of violence remain unrepentant, the the question is ultimately to me that I think would be valuable for a congregation to consider is who, who gets to tell someone that they ought to forgive someone else. And it's a, that's a that can border into uh, coercion, and it has, and it's been a way to further inflict violence on people who have been um, the the victims of trauma. It is to constantly tell them, well, they need to they need to forgive. That's the Christian thing to do. At the same time, I I think one of the central messages of the Christian tradition is grace, and I think Christ does tell us to forgive people. And if we are going to be the types of people who tell other people to forgive each other, what type of integrity do you have to have? And I think, like, do we have to be as good as Fred Rogers in order to do that? These are all, I think, important questions for a congregation to wrestle over. As And and I would encourage them to watch a movie like this and at least consider it. Because there, there is, it's not as, uh, it's not as, clear cut as it might seem in just thinking about Fred Rogers and his life or even watching this movie. I think that everyone should read when kids ask hard questions. Uh, and (laughs) particularly, uh, Elizabeth Gresham's chapter on forgiveness. She is a pastor in the Christian church disciples of Christ. And I feel like she's been in Texas for a number of years, but maybe just as moving. Um, but she really wrestles about how to talk to her child around forgiveness when a member of their family has harmed them, has sinned against them. And and she frames it, you know, where she's praying the Lord's Prayer with her son, and he's like, well, do we have to, you know. So, um, 
and it's really rich in a way that a lot of our church conversations about forgiveness are not. I did appreciate the forgiveness themes here in a way that I didn't expect to, but a couple things made that possible for me. Uh, One was that Lloyd's father is really sorry. He is really repentant and he's trying to make things, he's trying to reconcile. There's kind of no changing what has happened, uh, but but he's he's trying to have a relationship with Lloyd again, and uh, and so so it's up to Lloyd then to decide how he's going to respond to these overtures of reconciliation. The other really powerful moment I thought in that was when uh, there's sort of this dreamy sequence, uh, and Lloyd goes to. Uh, he sees his mother as she's dying and she says, basically, you don't have to be angry for me anymore. I don't need it. It's okay. And that then makes it sort of possible. So there's a lot more sort of people claiming ownership and realizing that real harm has been done in a way that our, our tendency to to look for people who have been harmed to sort of immediately forgive that's usually absent in our cultural conversations about that. So I thought this, so yeah, I thought the movie handled that really well and you could certainly use that. I also just think the insistence on speaking the truth and not being afraid to talk about hard things with anyone is really important. When we initially talked about putting together this book, uh, we had, the whole thing was like having tough conversations with kids. And we were sort of thinking about it as how do you bring up these things with your children? And then we were like, no one wants to bring up these topics with kids. You know, that seems like, wouldn't it just be better if we didn't ever talk to them about anything that was scary? Um, But as our writers were starting to put together their pieces, we realized that you don't, it's not like that you have to introduce these things, right? Children have questions. They ask them <laughs> and and you have to then respond. So I thought that one of the things, again, that was really nice about this was the sense that there is hurt in the world and there are things that children notice and know about and they want someone to tell them the truth. Like that's what is so lovely about the real Mr. Rogers. And I think that is captured a little bit in the film is that he tells people the truth. They trust him, not because he has puppets, but like, because he doesn't lie to them. And he listens. Well, before we move on, I just want to say how grateful we are for our partnership with the Christian Century. And I want to guide your attention to the great work they are doing. Catherine Reckless has just written on Parasite, which is the new movie by Bong Joon-ho, and Amy Freikholm has interviewed Kate Bowler about her newest book about evangelical women celebrities. Both of these sound fascinating, and as a personal plug, if you have not gone to see Parasite yet, please do so. It is truly amazing. If you are listening and don't yet subscribe to The Century, Sunday Morning Matinee listeners can get a free trial magazine subscription. For more information, visit christiancentury.org slash podcast offer. 
I also want to bring you some a word from Westminster John Knox Press and invite you to discover the radical pacifism of Fred Rogers in the book Peaceful Neighbor by Michael G. Long, which is available now from WJK. Explore how Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood was far from a sappy and sentimental children's program. It was a progressive platform for sharing countercultural beliefs about caring nonviolently for one another, for animals, and for the earth. But for now, we're going to move on to preaching. This segment is called Preaching to the Choir. We're going to look at the lectionary passages for December 1st. Adam um, Brownlee, we've made it to Advent. Congratulations. We've got, we've got some familiar Advent texts for the day. We've got Isaiah on the mountain of the Lord's house and Psalm 122 on the same. In Matthew's gospel, we have this familiar invocation to keep awake because we do not know the day or the hour of the Lord's coming. And then we have that echo in Romans as Paul instructs the church to wake from its sleep. Adam and Bromley, as you all look at these texts and as you enter into the Advent season, I know you're both preaching that Sunday. Does anything from Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood inspire you? Yeah, I, I mean, I, the Isaiah passage as we move into Advent is so central and so beautiful. And, and it got me thinking about Lloyd and his work as a writer. And so when we meet Lloyd in this movie, he's portrayed as someone who is... Um, as sort of a very important magazine writer, he does these profiles and takedowns, and um, he's a he's an investigative journalist, and and really his pen is his weapon, and it, you get the sense that he wants to you know cut people with it, and he seems to delight in his ability to break people with his writing, um, and then in this assignment to profile Fred Rogers, he has to use it for something else, and he tells his editor, like I'm I'm I don't write puff pieces don't give me 400 words to write for Fred Rogers. And inevitably what happens is he's, he's tasked with writing 400 words, but he ends up writing 10,000 words and he doesn't just write about Fred Rogers. He writes about himself in a way that he hasn't before. Um, and in many ways, his, his pen becomes something else. Um, he used to use it to like cut people and he has to use it now as a surgical tool to understand himself and to cut out those, parts of himself that are, um, that are festering. Um, and I'm, I'm taken by the Isaiah, the Isaiah passage in this imagination of peace. It's, it's not only do we have to stop the warring and, um, and stop the violence, but we have this added peace, which is we need to redeem the weapons that we used in the war. We don't just bury them. We don't just get rid of them we actually put them to some new use. And in order to do that, we have to have this kind of devious imagination. Um, and I think what this movie show also shows is that Fred has this devious imagination, which is to say that he's very clever. He's, he seems sincere, but over and over, his, his business partner, Bill, indicates that what Lloyd is receiving from Fred is, um, is what Fred wants him to receive. That it's, it's particularly curated. It's built for Lloyd in his particular time. That um, doesn't mean that it's disingenuous. It just uh, means that change requires not just change behaviors, but like changed imaginations. And so uh, we have to be able to look at the world and our practices and see something besides death, violence, pain, and destruction. And it takes a reformation of our imagination. And I, I always love that, you know, that the pruning share... Um, that the that the swords are turned into plow uh, into plowshares and 
um, and the spears and the pruning hooks, because it it indicates that it's not just that people aren't warring any longer. It's that they have taken the imagination that um, that war inspires and has put it to something that cultivates a world where everyone can live. And so I, I like that, and I like the way that that shows up in this movie. Bromley, what about you? What do you notice in these lectionary passages that it was inspired from uh, A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood? Well, much like the sort of open imagination, I'm struck in the gospel passage about... Uh, keeping awake and things that are unexpected. And, and I think that's, that was something that, uh, in the movie that Lloyd does not anticipate being surprised. He does not, he thinks he knows what he's going to find and knows what he wants to see. And in fact, he sees something very different. So I think this call to kind of be willing to have our minds changed, be willing to see something we don't expect to see is really important in that Advent season, right? Because we think we know what Jesus is going to look like. We think we know what God coming into the world is going to bring and going to be, but it, it may very well not be what we anticipate. Um, so, so we don't want to miss it, right? Um, I think too, again, as much as I love that emphasis on imagination, I do think and and so much the the not just sort of putting down the violence, but how do we transform the weapons? You're right; those are so powerful. I I'm struck by uh, "Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, that He may teach us His ways, and we can walk in His path." Out of Zion will go forth instruction. That that there are ways that we ought to live, not just ways that we ought to believe. But there are particular practices to put these visions into action and to bring them into reality. Uh, I really appreciate it. And, and both what I think one of the geniuses of Fred Rogers, I think, was modeling how you do that in particular with children. Here's how you talk about these things. Here's how you you know, here's how to be gentle and encourage curiosity and engender trust and all those sorts of things. So I think that there's something really important there. We're very much, um, I think sometimes in our congregation, we get uh, bowed down on believing the right thing and in a very liberal Protestant suburban Chicago sort of way. I mean, but, um, but, but here there's a sense that we actually have to do some things differently. Um, and, and again, not to plug the book a hundred times, but, but that's part of what's there, part of what makes it such a great resource is here are some really practical ways to go about having these, uh, gentle, affirming, searching, curious, justice minded conversations, um, with the sense that if we can do this better, then the world will change. I wonder in his own way, and I, I, you know, I think that there's some trouble here, obviously, too, but I, I, I wonder if Paul is kind of trying to figure out some of that same move here in Romans 13. I mean, there's 12 chapters of really intricate, complicated theological architecture that in the, the final chapters of this book, he he is trying his best to kind of boil down. 
And I, I keep having your words in my head of like, if your theology doesn't translate for kids, then rethink your theology. And there's a little bit of that happening, I think, here for Paul of like, the, uh, let us live honorably as in the day, not as not in reveling and drunkenness, not in debauchery, not in quarreling and jealousy, and instead put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's obviously here he's he's worried about bodies and he's worried about sex and there's stuff in here that we might not necessarily read in isolation without thinking more broadly but there is something i think that is uh that i i I kind of relate to about the okay i've i've written 12 chapters of a totally like indecipherable theological sermon (laughs) and academic research paper and then okay but now it's advent and all of this is going to mean something really practical and tangible and it's going to and it's it's going to be an invitation to some sort of way that kind of routinely and physically and and, and in my own discipline um marks that this this preparation and this waiting and this expectation and that, I don't know I find that to be kind of a helpful signpost as we enter the advent season it might be kind of fun to to rewrite not in reveling and drunkenness, not in debauchery right. and licentiousness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, but to be like, go caroling for the homebound. Right, you no, know, absolutely. not shopping endlessly. You know, yeah. I mean, to kind of, to think about um, what are the, yeah, what are the hard things for our people in this moment yeah. uh, that are pulling mm-hmm. us into, into the night you know, uh, and, then, and, uh, and there are yeah. other places at the end of this letter where he does that in things that are not about sex and bodies. Like he, the, yeah. those, the, the multiple parts right. of those chapters are him just trying to boil all of this down. And I, yeah, I, I think you could play with different pieces of that and kind of write some new hands-on invitations for the first yeah. Sunday of Advent. So I wanted to just note one other thing about the, the, um, the gospel passage for this lectionary week, which I have these very sincere memories of being a child and hearing in my good evangelical church a song called Left Behind that (laughs) played on a guitar um, about kids and brothers and mothers and sisters just being left behind. And then the refrain would be like, and it would fade out and said, you've been left behind. And it was freaking terrifying it was it was it, I, like i just can't um I, I still bear some of this burden i still think about it a lot actually um about that song and the ways in which it sort of terrorized me as a kid yeah. um thinking about my mother being left behind and thinking about and and i i think it's worth just considering like how Fred Rogers, at least in this movie and in his life, also realized that being a kid is scary. Like it's just really frightening. Mm-hmm. And there's so much that you don't understand. And that, that we need to be able to at least move into that fear with young people. Um, and I wonder if there's a way to preach this passage. And I actually don't know how to do it. Um, where we can just instead of trying to divert the fear that comes from that passage like this, but like, can we move into it? Can we kind of embrace it? I don't know. I, 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 this passage scares me. It's one of those, like, I don't, I'm not interested in being left behind 
or like divided from my family, truly. Mm-hmm. And and I don't quite know what to do with it. Um, and there are those moments where maybe the maybe the inspiration of Fred Rogers is not to run away from a passage like this, but but to try and lean into it and recognize that if it scares you, it probably scares other people too. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny because it's so divisive and some not uh, or it's about division, divisions of people and um, and and that and and in that way it is isolating. Right. You are left behind. Someone is left behind. And Roger's whole work is you are not alone. We are together. Uh, And there's a real tension about that in the gospel, too. Right. Between both. How do we not this particular gospel lesson, but like in general, you know, what is the particularity of the Christian faith and what is the good news, which will be for all the people. And so, yes, that one thing that strikes me listening to you talk is one of my kids has anxiety and we talk a lot with her therapist about how we can help her with that, um, help that not be so overwhelming for her. And one of the things, and and of course, I want to be so empathetic, you know, I understand why you're afraid. Yes, that's a real fear, you know, da, 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 da. Um, and, and good old Dr. Ann is like, well, okay, here's the thing. It is, <laughs> if don't, don't tell her it's a real fear, you know, don't shut her down. But, but when she has, when she gets spiraling, uh, talk about how, yes, you understand that she's worried, but she doesn't need to worry. That it's not her, she doesn't have to bear that all. And I am so not, that, that you're the grown up and you will worry about it. And you will take care of it. And I am so not a, let's set things aside and let God hash it out kind of person. Um, I, I really wrestle with doctrines of providence and things like that. Uh, but, but I, but, but I hear that here a little bit, which is that like, you can't worry about it. You don't know, you know, and, and part of it is just trusting that when it comes, I mean, yeah, it's terrifying. The unknown is terrifying, but part of trying to have faith, is trying to trust that even though it's unknown, it will be good. Bromley, I think that's a wonderful place to leave this and a wonderful word to end on. Thank you so much for coming and hanging out with us. Congratulations on the book and uh, best wishes for a good Advent season. Yeah, thanks so much. And thanks for my technical difficulties. All right, Adam, it is time for our last segment. This is called Postludes. It's just one more chance to get another little thought from each of us on something else we're watching or following. So hit me. What's your postlude for the week? I've been reading this book called Tattoos on the Heart by Greg Boyle. Um, It was a book that came out a few years ago and made a lot of waves in the Roman Catholic world. He is a Roman Catholic priest. He works in Los Angeles and does ministry among gang members, especially those people who are trying to exit the um, the gang life in Los Angeles. And he started this thing called Homeboy Industries, which has uh, become this incredible ministry of empowerment to people in Los Angeles who are looking to extricate themselves from sort of the the gang um, uh, the gang life. Uh, this book is really good. 
it's it's incredible. He's a really adept storyteller, and I'm realizing that at this point in my life, I'm most interested in my theology coming in the form of stories, and um, and his ability to tell a story and then make it a very poignant and and quite economic in the sense that it's like very brief and direct theological point built from the story is really, really impressive. And it got me thinking about my own preaching with respect to how do I use stories and how do I take a story and make a fundamental theological point from that story in a way that lands and is mm. direct and accessible. And mm. he, he is an he has an incredible gift at this. And so I'm learning a lot, not just because it's a, it's actually the stories themselves are very compelling, but the ways in which he tells the stories are worth considering as a way to tell stories within your own preaching, because he's, he's, he's talented. He's so talented at it. And so, yeah, if you didn't read tattoos on the heart, you should, um, I, I don't think it landed in the Protestant world as largely as it did in the Roman Catholic world. But he, he's worth considering as a, a sort of teacher, especially with respect to ideas of story and rhetoric. Yeah, really good. Really awesome. good. Awesome. That's really exciting. I'm going to look forward to that. Uh, yeah. And I mean, as as preachers, like we so often look for stories, too. Yeah. <laughs> to, other people's yeah. stories to tell. Yeah. Can I steal some of his? I mean, are, so, there, are there some good ones in there for me to yes. steal? Yeah. Great. Yes. Excellent. Yes. That's all. That's, that's all you had to exactly. say. That's all. That's all you had to say, man. <laughs> so, what about you, Matt? What's your postlude? Uh, Adam, you know, in some ways, this podcast started because you and I would occasionally see movies and go, "Man, that movie is a metaphor for ministry in a really obvious way." I believe we walked out of like a screening yeah. of Moneyball and maybe like uh, the King's Speech at some point. We're like, those movies are metaphors <laughs> for ministry. Maybe not intentionally, but they certainly could become that very quickly. And that is exactly what I thought when I walked out of Ford versus Ferrari about a week ago. No, oh, I mean, I, yeah. I saw the whole movie. I mean, I didn't walk out of the middle of it. But, and, and this is this, this is not a great movie. It's very much a dad movie. And so it was very much for me in a way that it is definitely not for everybody. Uh, but man, it has yeah. got the meta metaphor for ministry thing running on all cylinders. Uh, the, the title says Ford versus Ferrari. It is ostensibly about the rivalry between these car racing companies and the kind of coming of age of Formula One in the 1960s. But really, the conflict of the movie is Ford versus Ford. Really, the conflict is you have um, this, right. uh, the, this kind of celebrity driver, Carroll Shelby, played by Matt Damon, who wants to build out his own race car shop and ends up kind of working underneath Ford, Ford Motor Company, who is funding him to go put them on the competitive map in the European race car circuit. And it is absolutely like uh, the, the little creative rule-breaking shop that wants to do things its own way versus the giant institution that has too much credibility on the line and thinks it knows better uh, and is also funding everything. Uh, and it is, and the Carroll Shelby shop can be flexible, and it can um, it can think outside the box. And I can't believe I just said that. It's that it, it is that movie, <laughs> and and there is so much. It's agile. It's nimble. It's right, yeah. right. Yeah. There is so much kind of big institution angst in this movie, 
And I, I don't know whether we have run out of ways to talk about big institutional angst in the church, but if you need a new metaphor to do it, you could do a lot worse than using Ford versus Ferrari, especially if you have a congregation full of dads. So that's that's what I've got. Um, yeah. It's not a great movie, but it's an intriguing How does, movie. Wait. Yeah. How is Christian Bale in it? I haven't... Uh, I mean, he's very Christian Bale. I enjoyed it tremendously. Uh, he is he is uh, he is taking the movie much more seriously than everybody else is taking it, which is part of his his charm and his vocational identity, right? <laughs> right. So, um, yeah. I, I had a I had a, I have a strange feeling. This is my just my totally uninformed zero access theory is that uh, we are in an alternative universe and in the prime timeline. Matt Damon has um, Brad Pitt's role in Ad Astra, and Brad Pitt has Matt Damon's role in Ford versus Ferrari. I think they're both in the wrong movie, um, and that they should have that they should have swapped scripts, um, which is more of a critique of Matt Damon in this I movie this than theory. it is, is is Brad in in Ad Astra, which I, I quite liked. Um, but yeah, I, anyway, I, I I enjoyed it, and yeah, I mean Christian Bale is is fun to watch uh it it is a movie that probably should have come out in like july or august it felt very popcorny and i think their attempts to make it into like prestige historical something eh. they're trying to yeah i mean they they postponed the the release date they were going to make it a summer movie and then they wanted to make an oscar movie i think yeah it is not an. i mean so maybe maybe christian bale could limp in on a weak field but it's not an oscar movie um, at least I don't. I don't think okay. it should be. Uh, it doesn't have as much. It doesn't have the like complexity to it narratively that it needs to have to do that. Um, but it, I enjoyed it. It was super fun to watch. All right, Matt. Well, that about wraps it up for this episode. If you like the show, be sure to leave a rating on iTunes or come to the show page to discuss how we got it all wrong. We'd love to hear your feedback. Drop us a line on Facebook or Twitter or at the show page at sundaymorningmatinee.com. Special thanks, of course, to our friends at the Christian Century and to our editor, Derek Weston. Our music today was composed by Bobby Brickerhoff. Big thanks to him and his band, Prince Wednesday. Thanks, Matt. Thanks, Adam.